This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Billy Cushing. Now, Billy is a veteran law enforcement officer who was involved in three officer-involved shooting. The last of those three, he himself was wounded and his canine kit was murdered. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into policing, the aftermath of each of those shootings, legal implication, media, and of course, mourning his beloved dog. So before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 670 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Billy Cushing. Enjoy. Well, Billy, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to CJ, who connected us, an incredible human being. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me, James. I'm honored to be a part of this. Beautiful. Well, we'll get to how you know CJ and Operation During Warrior in, in a little while when we get to that kind of chronological moment. For people listening, if they haven't already figured it out from the accent, where are we finding you today? I am in Braintree, Massachusetts, uh, just south, uh, a couple miles south of Boston. 
Beautiful. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, so born and raised in Braintree. Um, my father also um, was in law enforcement. He was a police officer in the town that I grew up, Braintree. Um, I am one of five children. My uh, father and uh, mother divorced when I was younger and uh, my father uh, has a had another family, so I got a couple stepsisters, a brother, and then I have, um, it's me and my sister from uh, my mother and my father's marriage. Beautiful. So your dad was a cop. What was your mom doing? Uh, my mother was, um, she was a town official. She was the, actually the tax collector for um, the town that I live in. So a pretty, uh, kind of a, a towny family. So you had a police officer and a tax collector. You must have been a beloved family in the community. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, tell me firstly about through your lens as a young man, um, what was your dad's life th like through your eyes as a child? What was your kind of impression of him as a police officer? Well, that's I, I always looked up to my father and that was kind of um, kind of looked at him as like a god because of, you know, the whole I was infatuated with like the police stuff, uh, hearing the stories and uh, seeing him driving uh, the police car coming home in the car. So that was kind of my um I knew from a, an early age that was what I was wanted to do. And um, he thought I was crazy. He kept telling me, go, go do something else. Be a, he always told me, go be a firefighter. You don't want to do this job. So that was his uh, big thing. He, he kind of wanted nothing. He's trying to push me out of this and do something different. And that's, uh, I didn't listen. <laughs> well, with that, with, with what we've seen the last few years and, you know, the sadly, I think the, the uh, the steps backwards that we've made in, I think, the first responder professions in general, but especially in law enforcement, as far as the public perception, as far as some of the lack of support from some departments. What has been your dad's perspective being a veteran uh, police officer who's retired now? Um, my father ended up, had, I've had a, it's been a crazy year. My This last incident was in June 2021, and then my father ended up passing away in April of 2022. So it's been... Uh, that's Brent. It's been a tough year on, on both ends personally and uh, work-wise, but um, yeah, he was just um, my, the, the whole, my father's generation with uh, the coping with stuff at work was um, they, they turned to, uh, to drinking, you know, it is what it is that, that whole generation, that's what they did. And um, he used to always warn me, don't, don't rely on that to deal with your problems. So I think that was one of like the big takeaways. And thank God I, I listened to him with all the shit I had going on that um, I didn't go that route. But um, a lot of the stuff my father told me when I got on this job, I kind of chalked it up until uh, like the angry old guy talking, telling you some stuff. And then after five years being a cop, I was like, holy shit, this guy was uh, spot on everything he told me. So, I mean, firstly, I'm sorry that you, you lost him this year. Did he, did he talk about, you know, over the last couple of years as, as this all flared up, did he, was he in a position to have any sort of impact, input at that no, point? No, what's funny is we never, um, I've, I've, obviously I told you I was involved in three fatal shootings in five years and um, we never, we never talked about it. He didn't ask me questions about it. I think he, he felt obviously felt terrible what happened because that he was never in one of those situations, but um, yeah, he, we never talked about it. He never wanted to like hear how I felt. 
uh, how things went down. So it was kind of just, I think it just upset him. So I never, uh, never got to tell him uh, the, the details of what happened over the past couple of years. And how did he pass? Um, excuse me, how old was he when he passed? Um, he was 74. He was only retired uh, 11 years. And um, they had to push him on, out the door at 65. You have to retire in mass. And he, he left on his uh, right before his 65th birthday, which I was like, you are fucking crazy staying this long. <laughs> but um, my father ended up um, tough battle with cancer. And um, ultimately, it, uh, it finally got him. But he, uh, he put up a fight for Jesus for a long time. He was, he was actually working with cancer his last couple of years. He, he was a working cop um, while dealing with that. So this guy was a friggin' machine. Yeah. Well, it's so sad as well because, I mean, I talk about this a lot. Sadly, I am almost certain that, you know, our the stress levels in our job, the shift work in our job contributes to a lot of the things that take our men and women. And as I've said many times, once they retire, they cease to be a statistic. So we don't hear the story of the retiree that passed two, four, you know, 10 years later that should really based on their physical capabilities entering the job should really have a much longer lifespan than the average person. Right. And he had all these plans when he did retire that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And he, he basically didn't do much because he was dealing with all that shit. So when you were young, was he the kind of police officer that took his strength and conditioning, his fitness seriously back then? And was that kind of bleeding into you? Hell no, no, <laughs> no way. Um, yeah. My, my memories of, um, it was like quiet practice is what they called it. It was, uh, no, it wasn't like what we do now. Like fitness is a huge part of my life now. And his was the complete opposite. That's what they did. Nothing against those guys, but they would, um, in order to get through and go to the next day, they would, uh, be tying one on and, and drinking after shift and, you know, just different times. It is what it is. I don't, uh, I don't fault them for what they did, but it's uh, different times now. Yeah. Well, you look at the conversations that we're having these days. I mean, it was absent back then. And, you know, when you look back now, I think that a lot of the issues we see in our own profession, and sadly, a lot of issues that we see on the streets, you can go back one, two generations and see a point of origin. I mean, I always talk about this. I was totally looking at the World War II generations returning home with rose-tinted glasses. And then as I unpack all these stories and hear about what grandpa was like, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> no, they weren't coping well at all. And then you had granddad who was struggling and then that made, you know, mom or dad struggle. And then it's our generation that is storytelling. So, yeah, it's right. so sad that this conversation wasn't present, you know, 30 years ago. Right. And there was no, no peer support like it is now back then. It was, like I said, my father's generation was, uh, they were all Vietnam era. So they were, they were going to Vietnam at 18 years old, coming home, getting these police jobs. There was no there was no outlets to uh no peer support no avenues to get help or deal with some of the stuff they were dealing with so that's that was pretty much the coping mechanism how they how they handled it so different times it is what it is and i don't i don't fault him for any of that stuff it, it is what it is yeah well i think it's not even fault it's that we owe them to make it better you know seeing what they saw and they dealt with and the lack of tools that they had the current generation owes it to the previous ones to learn from what worked and what didn't and improve our professions. Right. That's what I try to tell younger guys coming on this job too, because the the younger guys getting on now don't care about the, you know, what the people before them did. It's just, it's not, 
it's just how they are. And um, I try to not to not to forget like my father's guys and his group of friends, what they did before they were doing some crazy shit way before we even um, were, were walking. So you got to, um, you got to respect those guys. And unfortunately some people don't nowadays. Well, that's the weird thing about this podcast is as I progress through, I realize a lot of the conversations is actually simply unlearning a lot of the, bullshit that you and I were taught when we were little and so take it away from from the, our profession look at the way people eat now like the simplicity of growing food and preparing it and cooking it is almost lost now you know, the the movement element simply you know whether you're a blacksmith or you know whatever it is you do you walk into work you cycle into work all that has been lost so there's a there's an arrogance to disregarding previous generations and if you look back of course technology has brought us to some beautiful places and you know obviously we're having this conversation because of technology but there are so many things that actually what our forefathers and foremothers were doing is so much better than we're doing today and we need to find the balance between the two right absolutely so speaking of wellness then what were you doing when you were in school age as far as exercise and sports I was a big, um, I, I played baseball and I was a, hockey was my thing. I was a big, big hockey guy. And how did, how did hockey um, kind of pay off when you got into law enforcement? The, the toughness of the sport, did that pay over? Um, yeah, I, I think I was, I think I was young and dumb back in, um, back in the day with hockey. There wasn't like, I didn't have anyone to push me to like work out and eat right. You kind of just relied on what you could do like playing hockey, there was no, uh, like kids now, they should eat up all this stuff. The, you know, the workout programs, they have all this, um, you know, stuff about eating right and doing that stuff. There wasn't, there was no one to tell me like, you got to do this, do that. You just kind of relied on what you could do on the ice and then everything else would just fall into place. So um, it's a different, different now for sure. Absolutely. Well, what about career aspirations? When you were in high school, were you already thinking about law enforcement? Yeah, I knew, um, what I wanted to do and um, nothing was going to stop me. I was going to, I was going to get there somehow. So walk me through that journey then from graduating high school to your first law enforcement. So academy. I graduated high school. I had a, um, a short stint playing college hockey. Um, thought I had the answer to everything and um, could just get by by playing hockey. And I, that didn't last long because um, no one told me that you actually had to go to classes. So that lasted less than a year and I was out of, out of uh, college. Um, not my choice, but, uh, they told me that was, an, that was it. See you later. So it was time to, uh, grow up and I was either going to go in the military or get a job and, uh, this job at the Norfolk County Sheriff's office. Um, it's a correctional facility, a short distance away from where I grew up. Um, the opportunity kind of fell on my lap and, um, I, took it and that was in uh 2000 i was young and dumb had no clue what i was uh walking into and um 22 years old and um working in a jail but learned a ton of shit in there which i don't regret that decision at all i learned a ton of stuff how to talk to people i met some great people friends um that i'll have for life and um it was what an experience it was well i want to explore that in a sec but just before i do before i forget when I started this podcast and having conversation after conversation, there was a stark realization that so many of us are drawn to this profession, sometimes because there's an element of trauma in early life, and we don't think about that. What do we bring into the profession? 
When you look back now, I mean, as you mentioned, your dad drank and he was a police officer. Were there any elements of your upbringing that now you would say, okay, that probably contributed to some of the mental health challenges later in my career? Um, I don't, I don't think so. There was just ways that I, um, as much as I looked up to my dad, there were things about him that I was like, I'm never going to be like that. And that the, the whole drinking thing. And I saw the issue between him and my mother. And I, that was my, that was one thing I was like, I will not, I don't drink now. Um, because I knew, I know where it would go. I did drink before and I have that gene that it could be, uh, an issue. So I, I stopped on my own, but, um, yeah, I think that's, that was the big thing. I, I don't think there was any, any huge things. It was just, um, takeaways from, um, what I saw with my parents that I, I was not going to be that guy. Now, what gave you the strength to stop when so many people are, feel like they're unable to? Um, I just, I think I, uh, I had a couple stories from when I stopped that I, uh, was just fucked up and i was like this is this is too easy to get banged up like this and i that's i just stopped i was like i can't i knew where i would be if i was um if i kept drinking i would have been i don't know i was a fucking mess so i I can't imagine i wouldn't be probably i wouldn't have been a a cop i'll tell you that i would have been uh a mess before that even that goal even uh came all right well then with working in the jails, when I worked in California with Anaheim Fire, Fire, excuse me, Anaheim Fire for a few years, I believe the law enforcement side there, a lot of the agencies, you had to go to corrections first and then you kind of graduated to patrol. So talk to me about the pros and cons of your experience with, with corrections side before you went into law enforcement. Oh, I think there's, um, I don't know any negative effects of it. I think, I wish we had that in uh, mass because... So in Massachusetts, corrections officers kind of get um, not a bad rap, but sometimes they don't get the respect they deserve. Um, there's guys that I work with um, on my the police department that wouldn't last two days working in, in a jail. Like all you have is your voice and a freaking radio. You don't have, they think you have all these like tools to, your voice is your, your main tool. Um, so you learn how to talk to people quick. Um, Cause that's all you have here in the jail. I worked in, it was, uh, it was like 60 inmates to one officer. So you're, you're locked inside with 60 of them and one of you. So you better be able to, to talk to people and, uh, or you're going to be in the shit pretty quick. Um, so yeah, I, you can see it on, on cops all over the area where I work. The, the people who have prior correctional experience just have, a different way about um, talking to people out in the street, whether it's uh, good people or bad people. So, with that, when you when you can analyze the communication that you had, was it was it an element of being fair with the inmates? I mean, what what kind of takeaways did you get that were added to your toolbox as you went onto the street? I th- I think it's um, respect on both ends. Like some of these people that are um, going away for a long time, if you. Uh, if you you treat them with a little bit of respect, they're going to treat with you with respect. And then on the opposite end, if you treat them like shit, they're going to treat you like shit and try to get over on you everything they can. That's that's what their uh, their game is. They're watching every move you make. So um, you can't go in there like a hot ass. And God, I wasn't. I didn't act like a hot ass in there because I like I said I was a uh, I was young and dumb and I probably weighed uh, like 140 pounds when I got hired. So it was pretty. Um, it's definitely a reality check for me. 
Now, in that profession specifically, were you encouraged to get stronger and fitter? Were there tools that allowed you to in that particular department? Yeah, every, everyone there was pretty... Um, that's when I like started working out. Like There was a, a lot of those guys know their their stuff and they have the, the guys I worked with working out. And that was kind of like the the start of my fitness journey. You uh, When you went to the academy too, there was a lot of running. They were... My correctional academy was harder than my police academy, um, uh, physically wise. So yeah, they they taught you uh, right off the rip that fitness is important. Now, with the lens that you had looking at corrections, you know, I've had people from all over the world. Some some great prison systems like Norway, for example, you know, very very proactive. Their um, recidivism rate, I think, is God something crazy like twenty percent, thirty percent, something like that. Um, with this lens now you have as a veteran law enforcement officer who's also worked in corrections, what is your perspective of the way that we do the judicial, excuse me, the judicial system and corrections at the moment? And are there any things that you think we could do differently that would improve maybe the outcome of some of these inmates? Oh, I think the whole uh, system now is an absolute fucking joke. Um, I know that the jail I worked at now, the, they're not even uh, putting people in there. They're still uh, in like this COVID shit. The numbers are way down. So um, I think that's what's going to improve it. I don't know, but I know that's like the big thing with um, working cops in my area is the, uh, they're like let down by the court system. Like you could go, you lock this guy up, you do all this report writing hours of paperwork. And then you find out, the next morning that they're walking out the door. So I think that's like a, that's a huge, it's a huge issue here. They're, uh, it's a fucking mess with how things are going here. That's, I think that's the, um, the culture now. That's why a lot of, um, working cops aren't, uh, there's, they're not doing what they did before, like going out there, hammering, locking guys up because they just know these people are going to walk out. There's no, there's no, there's more rules for the police than there is for, uh, for the shit bags. So I'll put this to you, and it's always, I think, you guys are the hardest audience for this question because you know, for so often you're told, go, go get these people, go catch these people. I a few years ago got to sit down with a guy in Portugal um, who was the man who spearheaded the decriminalization of addiction, not selling drugs, not smuggling, but the addicts themselves. And what they did is when those people were caught with a user's amount, they were funneled into um, addiction counseling, mental health counseling, job creation. And they had an incredible reversal, not only of the safety of their streets and um, you know the, the number of, again, people repeat offenders, but it opened up the the legal system the judicial system for the shitbags as you said and then it created so much more time and manpower to start chasing those people because it wasn't diluted by the addiction element my personal opinion is you know as a paramedic and a firefighter and what i've witnessed on the streets is that the you know the prohibition of drugs has been an epic fucking failure with your lens you know, what is your perspective of addiction and, again, that dilution and then obviously the ripple effect of what the addicts are doing as far as petty crime and burglary and those kind of things um, on, you know, all the years that you've served? Um, I, I just think it's, um, it's obviously any anyone um, that's working out knows it's got, gotten a lot worse. Like, it's, um, it's freaking crazy now. Even 
my community is a, a nice, uh, you know, it's fairly nice. And uh, now we, the homeless population is through the roof and um, there's panhandlers on every corner now. And this is, it's a direct result of um, the drug problem that's going on. Um, I don't even know how to answer that question. It's just, uh, it's, it's everywhere now. The, uh, the, the spike in drugs, the people using it. And it's like a revolving door, like the people you're, even the people that were, that I worked with uh, inmates that were in the jail when I was there, like you're still seeing them doing, doing the same shit. You see them uh, out and they're doing the same stuff. So I think it's just a, it's a the, the reoccurring cycle. And um, I know I'm not answering your question, James, like you, uh, no, you like are you though. To, but it's um, yeah, it's just, it's tough now because it's, um, it's a, it's a mess with what's going on with, uh, drugs are everywhere they're not um i know there's not these facilities they say there's there's nowhere to put them but they gotta do they have to do something it's, yeah it's crazy now yeah well no it's exactly what i wanted because i just want your honest honest perspective and i think for me again through my lens seeing what i saw we've had the prohibition law for almost 100 years and so it's not working. <laughs> you know what I mean? How long, right. how many years are we going to wait? I see it getting worse and worse and worse. I pulled sheets over, you know, the, the homeless people that were dead and the prostitutes we found in the dumpsters. And I mean, all this horrendous ripple effect. And so for me personally, James Gearing's opinion, I hope that we can start being more proactive and putting those people in the hands of the medical community, not the shitbags of the world. Right. And the, I, we always say too, like the, um, like the, the people in our drug unit will pick off like one drug dealer and lock him up. But then, you know, within an hour, it doesn't freaking matter because, uh, the, the next guy in line just fucking takes his, uh, you know, his cut. It's, it's, it's reoccurring. You take one off and then there's one that just picks up his customers. So you're, you're pretty much like shoveling shit against the tide. Yeah. Yeah, and to me, the answer is it's you know supply and demand. You aff- yep. you affect the demand, not the supply. You stop people being addicts, you're going to cut half the head off the snake. And even some of the issues that we see at the border, I think we're going to fix too. But I hope that one day we can get some real leaders in power that actually will start addressing it. Because then imagine the impact on law enforcement. Imagine how safer our streets would be for you guys as well. So yeah, hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully that happens because this is. The way uh, policing is now, it's not going to be, uh, it's going to take a while to go back to what it uh, was and what it should be because right now it's it's chaos. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem is everyone's pointing the finger at you guys and no one's asking yep. the question, why are the streets of America like war zones, but you can go to Finland or Iceland or Portugal and feel completely safe on their streets? Where Where is that question being posed? Right. And then every, you know, every day now it's a... Um, a uh, police officer uh, getting shot or killed. It, it's fucking crazy right now. Yeah, no, it's absolutely horrendous. Well, getting back to your journey, kind of walk me through then. You said that your your fitness standards were higher in corrections than law enforcement. So walk me through your kind of orientation academy, what that looked like, and then how that journey then took you to become a SWAT officer. Um, so uh at this i'll start at the jail like I, again i was um right out of college i didn't last long in college thought i knew everything went to this academy and um it was i didn't know how like my father never told me how academies worked and i got there on the first day sitting in the parking lot and these dudes come out and like screaming like get the fuck out of your car i'm like what what did i just i didn't know this was going to happen so 
that was and like I previously said, the my correctional academy was far worse than it was shorter, but far worse than my police um, academy. It was um, the drill instructors at the uh, the correctional academy were just um, they were in shape, um, didn't give a fuck if they hurt your feelings, and um, they were pretty much preparing you for what you were uh, you going to do. We had zero experience. We were all young and uh, we were going to get thrown into a jail with, um, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of inmates. So, um, and then fast forward to, I did five years. The, the running joke at the jail was if you didn't get out in five years, you were probably stuck there forever. And I literally did five years to the day. Like I was getting nervous. I'm like, Holy shit. Cause all the older guys would tell you that. And, um, I literally did five years to the day. And then finally, um, I didn't tell anyone I was leaving. I friggin' punched out my last night and was like, I could see you later. I'm, <laughs> I'm out of here. So I didn't tell any of them. And, uh, so then I started the police Academy. I kind of knew what the, that was my goal, um, from years ago and nothing was going to stop me once I was in there. And the, I thought like physical demands of like the PT and that stuff were going to be ruthless. And, um, it, it was, it wasn't anything bad. It was more probably the funnest time. Of my, uh, my career it was like six months of fun. Um, people say like the police Academy, I hate the police Academy. I would go back today because, uh, what a great group of people I had in there. And we, it was pretty, it was fun. It was long, but we had a great time. I think it's Massachusetts. I've heard a lot of good things about their, their standards in the Academy. What, what about the defensive tactics side? What would that look like? Um, yeah, that was, we had, um, we had the guy that was in charge of our uh, academy was pretty. Um, he was in super good shape, and he was all into uh, the DT aspect, and um, pretty much prepared you for the worst. So I think we did a lot. We did a ton of DT stuff um, in the academy. It was. I have no complaints about that. We they pretty much, you know. Um, from top to bottom, um, from like just starting out with DT until like, um, like fighting in there, they were, they were, they knew their shit with that. We were definitely prepared when we got out of there about that, that aspect of things. So just for timelines, um, me being mindful of your timeline, you sadly, you know, you know, I mean that wholeheartedly were involved ultimately in three officer involved shootings. So were any of those prior to you joining SWAT? Um, no, this was, um, they were all, when I was involved in canine and by, um, being on, uh, the SWAT team, I was assigned, we had seven dogs assigned to the SWAT team. And I was one of those, uh, I like to say it's cause my dog was, uh, my dog was good. That's why they wanted me to be a part of that. But, um, yeah, no, all my, um, all my incidents, um, were, um, basically related because I, because I was in canine, the canine guys go to the shitty calls and, um, it's a, a little motto is canines lead the way. So that's why, uh, you know, usually when there's a shit call, uh, they want a dog. So that's why, was, uh, when the police need the police, they call canine. That's, that's our other thing we say. So, yeah, I just got, um, I got stuck in some, uh, some people say it's bad shit. Maybe it's, it's cool shit. So I got to go do some cool things because, uh, I was on the canine unit. So did you have dogs growing up? Yeah, I had pet dogs. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know any. I I saw 
I saw people working dogs and like thought that was cool. And then I'll, I'll tell you a little story why when I first made up my mind, like this is what I'm going to do. I was always interested in the canine unit. And then one night I was, um, I had a couple of years on and I went um, on a canine track looking for a domestic suspect with a, um, a guy that worked in a neighboring community and um, they needed some, he needs someone to go on the track with him. I'm like, yeah, I'll go with you. So I start uh, going. And then within like five minutes, he absolutely fucking his dog annihilates. This dude was hiding under a bush and he f- tore this dude to shit. And I was like, right after that, I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm, I'm going to be a canine guy. That was my like first real introduction to it. And um, after seeing that, I'm like, this is what I'm doing. So, and then um, fast forward a couple of years later, I, I ultimately got what I wanted. So, so again, walk me through that journey. What from from being a, a regular officer to entering the ki- the canine world? So, I my first I got in canine after uh, just after year five. But I I always told my father like this is what I want to do now, and he was like, well, then um, you know, make sure your numbers are up, uh, make arrests, uh, write good reports, uh, write tickets, so then they'll have no reason to skip you. And that's kind of what I did. I my shift was super aggressive. The shift I was on, we all, we were all tight. We all hung around together and we, we went out and uh, did some awesome shit when we were working. So we worked um, overnights and it was, we would like laugh because we wouldn't, uh, we'd go all, as soon as like one guy called in like a car stop, it was game on for the rest of the shift. Like it was fucking nuts. So um, yeah, I, I worked pretty hard to, so when that position came up, they wouldn't be able to skip me. I wanted to, you know, be the guy they wanted. So, and ultimately that, that happened. Um, they put a spot out for a patrol canine. I put in for it and um, I got it. And the rest is uh, history. And was Kit your first canine? Yeah, he was my one and only dog. I, um, we went down, uh, I'll, I'll tell a, do you want me to tell you a little bit of the story about picking the dog? Yeah, please. Yeah, we, um, so they pick me for the position. Um, they set me up with the trainer. They, they kind of like, he gets to know your personality. Then they kind of pay you up with a, a certain dog. So we, we took the trip to Connecticut to get the dog in. Um, they, they ended up picking this dog, this beautiful dog. Um, and they're like, okay, this is your dog. And then before we left, the guy's like, all right, hold on. I have one more dog I want to show you. And he brings kid out. And um, he just came from Slovakia. So he was kind of, he came the day before. So he was kind of like matted fur. He looked like shit. And he came out with like this huge attitude. So they didn't even do any tests, right? When they saw him come out, they're like, well, we'll take him, put the other dog back. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like you're putting the, <laughs> this fucking good looking dog back, taking this mangy dog with us. I'm like, what the hell's going on? But thank God they friggin' brought him out. So that's why they just tell you to shut your mouth and listen to the trainer. And, uh, that's what I did, and fuck, did it pay off? Now, why Slovakia? Um, they, they just imported. We have um, our group had like dogs from Holland, uh, fucking all over, um, over there. Um, Holland, uh, Czech, Slovakia, just the better bloodline. So that's where they they get these uh, dogs imported. So you have this mangy canine. Walk me through, you know, the the months of training that followed that, and the relationship that you built. Um, so I started in July, it was the beginning of the summer when I started and, um, yeah, it was just a whole, it was, he went from being like, I could have friends at my house and he was fine running around the house. And then 
you know, uh, about a, probably a month into canine, the Canine Academy, which is 16 weeks, um, they, they told me, okay, today's the day we're going to turn them on. And I was like, fuck, turn them on. And that was the, that was the first day we did a, um, a bite at the end of the track. And from that day, like that was the day that they were like, so right about turning them on. He was after that, he was, uh, it was fucking me and him against the world. It was crazy how, uh, how that worked out. Yeah, I have one of my guests on and one, he's not a law enforcement officer, but he, he trains canines and one of his things is, is training them to bite. And his whole, I guess, you know, training principle is a lot of canines that aren't properly trained won't bite at the right time and therefore put themselves and or their officers in more danger or even the person that they're supposed to be stopping. Like if they don't bite the person and they end up pulling a gun, then they get shot. That even can be detrimental to the bad guy. Right. Yeah, that we have, we're lucky we have, um, our trainer Mark O'Reilly is uh, he's he's almost like pot dog with uh, the the shit he does would amaze you with dogs. So you kind of just listen and uh, do what he tells you, and um, if you do that, I, you you'll be good. Now just going away from canines for a second. One thing that struck me: you ended up going back to Braintree, so your hometown. One of the the things you hear a lot from the military when they're talking about first responders is well you know yes i did and saw horrible shit but i got to leave it in baghdad fallujah wherever the next tier is someone like myself that worked close to the city but never worked in the city that i served so you know i'm living in huntington beach i work for anaheim and up in ocala here down in orlando area but you grew up worked and lived in braintree so what what was that like as far as the reminder of all these incidents when you're living there and driving through all the time? I, I think that's, that's part of the thing that, um, that I tell people too. Like, um, like I said, Braintree is not a, um, it's a big city pro it's like small town America, big city problems. Um, it's location and proximity to Boston is kind of why we get, uh, we have a couple of well, one like shitty community near us. We kind of get like spillover from them, but it's in like the melting pot of, of um, the South shore area of Massachusetts. Um, but yeah, that's the, the, the crazy thing is uh, Braintree is quiet. When I grew up um, some of these places where these incidents happened, like I would, I had a, fr a friend that lived in the uh, complex, a couple of friends that lived in the complex where my last incident happened Um Oh, you're constantly freaking driving by these places. So you don't expect this shit to happen in, you know, where you grew up, where my kids are going to grow up. So it's, um, and I think that was the big thing with my father. He, not, not that he thought like Braintree was safe, but I think he thought like, uh, yeah, it's okay. You can be a cop here. Uh, some stuff's going to happen, but it's not going to be too bad. And then, um, shit got bad. So let's walk through the the shootings then. So you're a canine officer. You're assigned to SWAT. Um, you know, I know there there was one in 2016 where you guys got the Medal of Valor. So walk me through. I mean, no police officer wants to to draw their weapon. No one certainly wants to take a life. But uh, as we've seen on you know many uh, a body cam, that's that's forced on on a lot of people. So walk me through that first one and the impact that had on you. Um, yeah. So. Uh, let me start off to saying like we luckily for my dog um we had a shitload of success like right off the rip when i got out of canine school it was 
a, a couple quick finds and I was uh, a year in, I already had a couple apprehensions under my belt. I was uh, doing pretty good. And I knew he, I knew my freaking dog worked. So it was, once you know that like, you have some handles out there that don't have confidence, they're like just out there like, Oh yeah, maybe you'll find them. Maybe you won't. If most of the time, if that person was out there, if I had a point, uh, like a starting point or a point last seen, um, and that dude didn't get in a car or, uh, get like picked up somewhere. Like I knew he was fucked because my dog was spot on. So 2016, I get called out and I was home. I was off duty. I get called out in the middle of the night for a, uh, domestic violence uh, thing. They didn't really say too much. They just said like, can you come in and get a domestic? The guy ran. So when I got, I, I leave my house, I get there within a couple minutes. Uh, it's the friggin' middle of the night. It was like quarter or two in the morning. And um, when I got there, uh, one of the guys, usually I would go alone or take one other guy with me on a track. And when I got there, there was two officers there. One had a shotgun, one had a less lethal shotgun. I'm like, the fuck is going on? Like, and they're like, oh, this guy's, this guy's crazy. He did this. So we tried to like break in the house. He had a knife and um, his estranged uh, wife or girlfriend, baby mama, she had uh, two, two children in there and she had to barricade herself in the bathroom with the kids because he was trying to like knife his way into the, to the bathroom. So long story short, I um, end up taking kid out. We start tracking through the neighborhood. Uh, a couple minutes later, I told the guys I was with, I'm like, he's, this guy's like right here. Cause I knew the, my dog's on the reaction he was having. I'm like, this guy's right here. So he ends up um, going to this, there was a parked car in a driveway and um, all of a sudden Kit tries to go under the front of the car, the front bumper of the car. And I look and I'm like, fuck the guy's hiding under the car. So I didn't want to even bite this guy. Cause I'm like, if he bites him under the car, he's going to, it's going to be a pain in the ass to get him out. And he's going to, destroy this guy so i was just telling the guy like hey come out buddy uh i don't want my dog to bite you and th this guy was like had this look on his face like something's wrong with this dude so gave him a couple more commands to come out and then um he finally he starts crawling out and then uh he as soon as he gets out he fucking pulls this big knife out of the front of his waistband and said um you don't know it but uh tonight you're gonna die and I was like, what the, who the fuck says this one? I had a fucking 85 pound dog drooling to fucking hammer this dude. And my backup guys with, uh, with a shotgun and a less lethal shotgun. So now this um, guy starts coming at me with a knife. I launched the dog. Uh, kid ends up biting him in the right lat, hanging off his, off his right lat. And this guy's still walking towards me. So they end up, uh, one of the guys I was with ended up hitting him a couple times with the um, less lethal beanbag gun that did. It just infuriated this guy. So he's got my dog hanging off him, just gets hit with multiple beanbag rounds, and it just fucking pissed him off even more. And then um, it just started going bad from there. And now, um, you know, seconds pass, and this guy's up in my face, um, coming down to my head with the, with the knife, trying to fucking smash my head in with the knife. And, uh, I ended up shooting him twice and uh, I couldn't even get, we were so close that I couldn't even like get my gun out and draw it how you should be drawing. I had to literally like just take it out of my whole stuff and uh, I can basically like contact shots to this guy because we were so freaking close. And um, that was it for that one. He ended up uh, fucking dying and 
that was incident number one. So I don't know if it, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that. I kind of like didn't know what the fuck was. I didn't know how it worked. They threw me in an ambulance. It was fucking weird. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I mean everyone. Not everyone. That's, that's a generalization. Um, the the kind of impression is, you know, there's an officer involved shooting, and then, you know, there might be talk for and against in the media, and you go on with your day. But obviously, it's not that case at all. The moment, whether it's justified or not, there's a whole process for an officer, which I don't think in many many times is exactly beneficial for that person's mental health. So walk me through. You know, right. you almost got murdered. Yeah, so <laughs> what happens I'll, next? I'll this isn't funny, but it, it is because so that all happens. And now I'm like, I got to get my dog back to my cruiser so I can see if, cause I thought he got stabbed because he was attached to the guy the whole friggin' time. And I didn't know if like I shot my own dog. So I'm like, I got to get back to the, uh, back to my cruiser so I can check him. And so they're all like tending to the, the fucking guy. And, uh, I'm going back to my cruiser and I was like cutting through yards to go back. And I, this is now it's like two in the morning and I'm going across, um, grass and one of the neighbor's houses and this guy comes out, he's like, get your fucking dog off my grass. And I was like, are you fucking, this guy has no fucking clue what just happened. And he's yelling, I'm in fucking uniform and you're telling me to get off your grass. So I'm just like, people have no freaking clue, but so then I check my dog. He's fine. I put him in my cruiser. They're like, oh, you got to go to the hospital. They throw me in the ambulance. And I'm like, what? Like, I didn't know what. No one tells you. They don't tell you in the academy. If uh, you're in a, uh, you're shooting, they do this, do that to you. So they're, um, they put me in the back of the ambulance. Um, we work pretty closely with the paramedics in, in our jurisdiction. So they kind of like were looking me over. And I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? It was so it was like 10 minutes of weird in the back of the ambulance, just sitting there and they're like staring. They weren't even doing anything. Uh, they like check my blood pressure and were like staring at me. I'm like, what are we, what are we doing right now? So then they ended up bringing me to the friggin' hospital in the same thing. They put me in a friggin' room and the doctor's doing like these weird tests on me. I don't know if they thought I was like crazy or something, but um, it was fucking bizarre. And then they put the, um, the guy that I had just shot right in the room, right next to me at the hospital. Really? And had hit, it was crazy. And, um, the nurses kept coming into the room. I was, I was sitting there. I had a couple of guys from my job with me and, um, the nurse, one of the nurses kept coming in. She's like, we're doing, um, the best we can to save them. I'm like, why are they like, I, I don't give a fuck. Like I already knew he was dead. Um, I don't know if they were trying to make me feel better, but I didn't, I was like, you're just aggravating me. Get out of here. So that was, um, that was strange. But then I will tell you too, I, so this, this was like one of the first ones in forever at my department, a fatal shooting. So, um, stupid on my part, but I didn't want to stay out of, I'm like, if I stay out of work a long time after this, like people are going to think I'm, I'm friggin' soft. So I, that was crazy thinking in my head. Like, I'm like, I gotta get back to work. I gotta back to work. And, uh, I talked to like peer support. They kind of just cleared me. I kind of, I don't know. I just, I think I kind of just blew smoke thinking like I was uh, at these people thinking like I was okay. So I ended up going back to work in a couple weeks, which was, again, I thought I was being like the big tough guy. Like, yeah, I'm back to work. That, that doesn't bother me. And then, um, I went on a, another track for, it was a home, home invasion with multiple suspects. And I went, on a track with another officer. And this was right when I got back 
And um, I knew I was fucked up. That's when I knew I had something wrong with me because I was on the track and we're going through the woods and every like little branch that I broke, I was freaking stopping, pulling my gun out. Like, I think I went, that was the day I went home and was like, like time to unfuck yourself and maybe have like a real conversation with someone. Um, because anyone says that they, if some of the stuff doesn't bother me, like it is what it is. It's, it's, I know it's part of the gig, but there's other stuff that it's, it doesn't fucking go away. Like you're, uh, you constantly think about shit. Um, there's little reminders of like sounds and noises that you don't forget. So I knew I had an issue and I had to, uh, take a little bit more time and, and work my way through it, which I did. So what tools did you use? Was it counseling? You know, were there, were there any specific Yeah, I, I talked. It was a uh, little counseling and, uh, having some real conversations with my friends, but mostly, uh, yeah, I was like the peer support people that I can, uh, that I can, we're lucky that we have a, a peer support network where we, um, at my department, we're kind of, we have like a regional team that they're freaking great. And then, um, we have a female, um, detective, Christine Leiden. She's like a go-to peer support, uh, person. And she's fucking, my God, she's like a, an angel. She, uh, she should be just like doing this stuff full time because she's so freaking good. So I had her to bounce stuff off. So, um, but yeah, it was like little, little shit that I, I thought I could, uh, I had this big thing that I had to get back to work cause I was worried about what other people said and it was the freaking wrong decision. That's what I tell people now to James that like go through stuff, like take your time and figure it out because, um, anyone who thinks they can like just do uh, go through a, a shit show moment like that and then just be like, oh yeah, I'll uh, yeah, I'll, I'll fucking work my shift tomorrow. Like, yeah, you can, but you'll probably suck. Yeah, well, and, and you take a step back. Like, so, so why did you need time off? Well, I was almost murdered and I killed a man. You know, yeah. when you put it into like plain words, you're like, well, fuck, no wonder. But yeah, you put that cape on, and I think especially early in our career, it's a complete facade. But there's this young rookie mentality of oh i can deal with trauma i can deal with this i can deal with that and the reality is no one gives a fuck if you know what we care about is that when you turn up to the next shift that you're ready to do your job and that may take a few weeks of processing whatever it is that you just saw or did yeah and there's other things too like i i the next morning or that the same morning i came home and one of my um friends who's a fucking meathead he uh he ends up calling me he's like hey do you hear about what happened this morning? And I was like, what? And he's like, one of our guys fucking shot someone. And I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, who was it? I'm like, it was me, you fucking idiot. Like, the people just don't know. Like, uh, people don't know. Absolutely. So so how long did you take ultimately to get back to that point? And then let's walk through shooting number two. God, it was uh, three weeks when I went back to work. And then I ended up uh, going out for a couple more just to like, uh, work through some, some stuff. And then, uh, yeah, then I was back and I was back and, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too long. And then of course you got to wait for like the district attorney's office to clear you of any of that stuff. But, um, as soon as I got through like the initial, I don't know if it was shock or what it was, but I, um, I was good to go after that. I just wanted to get back. I want to get back to like some sense of normalcy. I just needed to figure stuff out. So with that, before we go to the second one, was there any kind of legal media blowback from that first one? Um, yeah, there was um, there was some asshole in my uh, community that was like going around uh, 
he went to like the city council and wanted me fired. He, he like started a bunch of shit. He was just some like weirdo that lived in town that like thought I was like this, um, fucking, he was saying like I was a murderer and stuff. So I had to deal with, uh, with that guy for a little bit. He was going to like business owners in town and, and making a bunch of shit up. Um, it was fucking weird, but then he just like, kind of, he went in front of like the, the council and they let him talk and, the guy was just a, a fool. I don't even know what his problem was. I think he was just one of those, like, uh, I don't know, just trying to start shit, but it went, they pretty much like brushed him off and then he went away. I haven't, I don't know what, whatever happened to him, but he caused like a bunch of, sh- like a bu- more stress than I needed because this guy was just a misinformed asshole, but he ended up just going away. But that was the only like blowback. Yeah, the media was all over it for a little bit and then it kind of like, the media is all over stuff until something else happens and then it kind of went away. Exactly. So you didn't get any, you should have shot him in the leg conversations then? No, um, actually, yes, I did. Like I, this is another one too. Like the people that say foolish stuff. I was at uh, probably a couple months after I was at a, a breakfast, a local breakfast place. And there was a guy there and he, he came over talking to the table because he knew uh, someone I was with at the table and uh, he, he knew we were cops and he was talking and uh He's like, can you believe um, that guy uh, killed, the canine guy killed that uh, guy? And I was like, sit down, like this fucking motherfucker. <laughs> like, so, and he, and uh, he's like, you know, you, you just shoot and kill him. You, you can't just like warn him and shoot him in the leg. I was like, and I sat there cause I was going to be like, you're a fucking idiot. Tell this guy, but I'm like, I'm not going to cause a scene in this place. So I just let it ride. And the, the person I was with kind of like went a different direction with the conversation, but I'm like, that, that's the shit. Like you have no clue what you're talking about and you're just like, how many other people did that fucking guy say that to? Yeah, exactly. So they just don't get it. Yeah. And then you add social media into it and you add, you know, it's just crazy. Um, all right. Well then let's walk through to, um, the second shooting then. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's so bad that someone has to do it once, but I have multiple times. I mean, that, that obviously there's a, there's a, 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 a multiplying element to that. So what was the second one? So the second one, I was actually working. Um, one of my closest friends calls me and he, he, um, he goes, we're, we're going to go serve a warrant at this shitty motel. Um, that's in our community. So he's like, why don't you uh, come down here in case we need uh, your partner? So I was like, okay, I'll go down there. So I went and met um, three other guys that are my close buddies. Um, and this is something we did all the time. This wasn't like a out of the ordinary thing, like going to serve a warrant at this place. This place is a shithole and uh, it's like a haven for, for, for shit bags. So um, we go down there. Uh, the person we were looking for, uh, his uh, vehicle that he was uh, driving was pa- backed into a parking spot. So we're like, oh, good. His, he's probably here. And then um, one of our other buddies, like we didn't tell everyone what we were doing. Uh, one of our other friends came through the parking lot in the cruiser and was like, what are you guys doing? So we, called him and i uh, was like wait this is what we're doing do you want to come with us and so he came so now we have five of us down there so we had a whole plan like this is what we're going to do we're going to stack up on the door do this we had like the right guys there that it wasn't just like a. we were laughing and joking but it was like the guys that you wanted to be there if something happened so we we had a whole plan this is what we're going to do and um as soon as we announced our presence at the door fucking all hell broke loose he, this as soon as he said, uh, one of the other guys said, it's the police. And he's like, who is it? It's the police. 
around stuff, fucking coming through the door, coming through the window. This dude just started lighting us up. So um, one of our guys, Donnie Delaney, ends up uh, right off the rip, gets, uh, he fucking falls on the ground. Uh, he's like, I'm shot. He got shot in the side of the head. And um, he's a fucking badass. So he started, he kept fucking shooting. He's on the ground shooting. We were all dumping rounds into the, into the room. It was just, it was like nuts for like, uh, you know, 25 to 30 seconds, just nuts. We didn't even know. We were just trying to dump his, we knew Donnie was hurt on the ground. So we were just trying to, me and the guy that was to my right, were just trying to dump as many rounds as we could in through the window into the room. So um, one of the other guys ends up evac and Donnie, he ends up just pretty much buddy dragging him by his vest to get him out of there. Cause he was obviously freaking hurt. And um, we just kept fucking dumping rounds into the room. Basically uh, they, they tell us, um, they tell us in the police academy, there's like no such thing as cover fire in policing that we were actually told that once. Um, but that's what we were fucking doing. We were trying to get, get him out of there and just dumping as many rounds as quick as we could into the, into the room. So um, luckily we end up uh, fucking, he died, the fucking idiot in the room. And um, Johnny got freaking super lucky. He took a round to the, to the side of his head, which um, luckily the fucking steel door uh, kind of flattened out the round as it came through the door. So, and that's why it didn't go through his friggin' head. But yeah, that was not seeing one of your, uh, your closest friends get fucking get hit right beside you. And then, uh, we knew we had to fucking do what we had to do. So that was nuts. That was, yeah, it was a crazy night. Well, the scary thing about that kind of scene too, I'm sure a lot of people listening are probably thinking that is, you know, the potential for collateral damage as well. So I'm assuming you were lucky in that particular case. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, we, again, they, we didn't know what the hell, uh, we didn't know if there was like five guys in there shooting, you know, you're in, it's coming out of a freaking hotel room. It sounds like there's a fucking howitzer in the room, how loud it was. So, um, yeah, someone else was like, what was your target backdrop? Like, um, fuck you. Like the dude shooting out of the room, we were dumping rounds into the room, target backdrop. That's like people that say that, like, what was your target backdrop? Uh, have you had bullets flying by your fucking head? Someone, someone did ask us that a supervisor, what was your target backdrop? Within a, within a half hour of like clearing this incident, what was your target backdrop? Like, stupid question, right? That then and there, when when your buddy next to you gets fucking shot in the head. Yeah, exactly. So again, aftermath of that one, what did that look like? Um, there was um, there, it ended up nothing ended up coming of it, but that was um, I don't know how we say this one, James, correctly on there. Um. I won't even go with what I was going to say, but yeah, we worried about like the family causing a, uh, causing a scene. And, um, yeah, there was, it was a little crazy for a bit, but then that also kind of faded away. And luckily Donnie recovered. Um, everyone was pretty much good. One of, um, one of uh, the guy, the guy that came by in the cruiser that we, uh, I told like come with us, he ended up having a real hard time with this. Um, he was, he didn't shoot. He wasn't in a position. If he shot where he was, he was like, it was me, another guy. And then this guy where he was, he wouldn't have been able to, he would have shot us if he shot. So he had a lot of guilt about not, not shooting. And that's like the tough thing that people, people didn't know about this whole thing. Like he was our close friend. And as a result of this, 
fucking incident. He ended up drinking himself to death and we lost him. Paul Hamilton, the best, uh, super nice guy. And, um, he had a ton of guilt, uh, that night. And that was the other thing that like, Oh God, that, that made this thing, what happened was terrible. And then within, um, God, it was, it wasn't long. It was within like a year and a half. He was, uh, we lost Paul. He never came back to work after that night. And it was, uh, fucking terrible. Well, and that's what really kills me about the narrative of join a police force so you can potentially kill a minority, you know, whatever, whatever is phrased. And you, firstly, I always say this, you know, if you really have you know, racist tendencies, for example, the, the fast track is to join the clan or the Black Panthers or, you know, you know what I mean? There are some, there are some gangs you can join where you can immediately go and, you know, shoot at people that you don't like to go through the law enforcement path. And the one day opportunity that you might get to do some harm to a you know, specific group of people is just such lunacy. But to wake to the idea that you're going to wake up one day and hope that you're going to kill someone as well is another kind of narrative that's put out there. The reality is when you hear the stories, you know, of course, you're relieved when you were able to kill the guy that was trying to stab you in the head. But, you know, it, there's a weight to taking a life. And it's so sad to hear that you know, Paul suffered to the point where it ended up taking his as well. And he didn't even fire a shot. Right. Yeah. So that was... um that's what like a lot of people um, didn't get with the whole thing. Like that was um, um, Paul's what happened to Paul was a direct result of what happened um, that night. And um, so we rewind a little bit. We were out of work um, that happened on May 5th and we were out of work all summer. Um, so we spent, we were almost together every day, all of us, cause we were all out of work and we knew that was becoming an issue, his drinking, but we didn't like, we've, we would like not joke about it, but we'd be like, dude, you got to fucking relax. And, uh, that was his thing. He just kept, kept going and going and going. And, uh, then they kept, uh, we got cleared by the district attorney in July and we thought we were going to come back to work. And then, um, the chief at the time wanted to do a, uh, an internal investigation to make sure we didn't violate any policies. So that was like, you think you're going back to work, but it's like, no, nope, hold on. You're not going back to work. Cause I'm going to do this. So then any reasonable person thinks like, Oh, an IA, like, well, are they trying to jam us up? Like what, why do they want to do an IA? Like we were cleared by the DA. So that caused like a ton of shit. That's a whole different story. I'm not going to get into that, that because I don't want to get too angry, but um, the guy was a complete joke. Uh, the chief at the time. Well, another thing that I've seen from a lot of people, and I've talked about this quite a lot, whether you're involved in officer-involved shooting, whether you are injured, whether you retired, whatever it is, when you're taken away from that profession, that comes at a cost. And you know, obviously, you can offset it with with other things. But you were—that was your tribe, that was your purpose, that was your identity. And so, even though you know we said you need time to process this, there's probably a point where too much time starts actually being detrimental and i can see how when you're all thinking you're going to go back and all of a sudden that's taken away and then there's that element of organizational stress that organizational betrayal that's yet another compounding element now you know maybe paul was able to navigate it had you been able to return when you were supposed to but now you've added you know several more crushing layers that may have been the final nail and that's a um like i said we can well we can talk after about that but I don't even want to get into that whole thing. Like the whole after action of 
so my my three shootings all three different chiefs so that the way the second one was handled was um people thought we were like we were angry like people oh they're angry it's like you have no fucking clue why we're angry because you don't know the whole the whole friggin' story we have a, a right to be angry and if you've never done what we did don't like shut your fucking mouth because you don't know like people always talk like oh i read books and and did this like if unless you've done it like don't talk to me about like the book you read and how that's the problem with um some people in this profession they'll tell you all this stuff oh this is normal this is normal uh, that's normal oh is it have you ever done have you ever killed someone uh no okay then then don't fucking tell me what's normal because you don't just because you took a class or read a book so it's that could be a whole nother, another podcast James. <laughs> Well, even, like I said, skating the surface, though, these are important things for people to hear. So we'll walk through then to um, June 4th, 2021. So talk to me about, you know, the events leading up to and then and then we'll talk about the other side of it. So I was I was home. I was um, I actually had the it was a it was a Friday. I had nothing to do that day, but work at three thirty. So I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I can go to the gym and just have my morning. So I was uh, off duty and it was around one o'clock in the afternoon and my phone rings and same thing as 2016, the dispatch is like, hey, can you, uh, we just had a domestic, uh, can you and Kit come out? We're just trying to find this guy. That was like, that was all, all the information I had. So I was like, yeah, okay. So I literally threw a t-shirt on, pair of pants. I put my shit on, throw the dog in the car start driving there and it's probably like a five minute drive from my where i live and um as i'm driving there it went from like a you have like calls that you know are like oh this is gonna be a fucking shit show and the other calls it's like yeah i'm gonna pro i thought i would either you know find this guy my dog might bite him i'll i'll come home take a shower and then go work my 3 30 shift i didn't think it was gonna be like a, a big thing so I'm driving there and as I'm driving there, the call started like, started ran- it went from like a, just a regular domestic. And then it was like, he's possibly armed. Okay. He is, it's confirmed. He is armed. He has two guns on him. Uh, blah, blah. It's, so it started like getting worse as I was driving there, but not bad that I was like, Oh boy, I need, uh, you know, like I got to do this and got to do that. And so I get there and, um, it's a, it's a pretty big, uh, like low income housing projects. It's like one of our shitty areas in town. And there's so many, uh, so many buildings that the dog is not a friggin' miracle worker. I kind of need like a, a point where this dude was like seen running out the, out of the apartment or buy a car. So a couple minutes there, I get the, um, someone tells me they were watching like some, uh, they had, they just installed like, uh, cameras in the complex and they, I don't know if it was my chief or one of the sergeants came over the radio and, and said like, uh, looks like he went into the wood line behind this particular building. So I was like, Oh, great. Cause that gives, gives me a starting point. So this area that I was going to enter is like, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's thick. It's swamp. It's shitty. It was hot as balls out that day. So I called for, uh, I had one guy with me and, um, because I was in that area one other time with the dog, I said, let's get a third guy here because you can't see. So we called for a third um, officer to, uh, to come with us. So then we step off, we go into the woods. Uh, it's myself, uh, Dickie Seibert, who was, he was carrying a, a long gun. He had an M4 and then Matt Donahue, who just had his, his pistol. 
So we had a plan going in there. These guys have been on tracks with me before, so they kind of know how it, or they do know how it works and where I want them. And so we start going in the woods. We went in the woods a couple hundred yards. Um, I noticed a behavior change in the dog. And I told those guys, I'm like, you like heads up because this guy is in this shit somewhere within a matter of seconds. Uh, Kit is I'm on a fit. I have him on a 15 foot lead. He is fucking taken off. He almost like I describe it as like a dolphin, like coming in and out of the water. He was going through this thick brush, like flying and um, comes to a, uh, this four foot rock in the, in the middle of the woods covered with shit. And I look and I'm like, fucking a, this dude's standing up with the fucking, um, with a gun. It was a, I could see like the silver slide on the gun. I'm like, fuck. So at the same time, kid fucking jumps up on the rock, uh, right onto the guy and I hear three quick fucking shots. So instantly fucking kills Kit. Kit comes like flying back in the air towards us. And then it was, this is happening in like seconds. And I'm, now it's like, okay, you're, fu- I was probably less than seven feet away from this guy at the time. And now it's like, fuck, like, here we go. So we just started dumping rounds at each other. And uh, then Dickie stopped. Dickie was uh, like right on my shoulder behind me he starts dumping rounds with a long gun so it's like a uh like a shit a close quarters shit show um and then matt's uh so he starts shooting so it was over uh 50 rounds in 10 seconds um we shot so so i fire all the rounds in my gun and i'm trying to uh because i've done this how many times has a cop done this whether it's at the range real life you you can reload like in your sleep so i'm trying to I dump my first mag and I'm trying to put a, a second mag in to fucking keep going. And, uh, this is the thing too. If we, we don't have body cameras, if we did, we like kind of laugh about this now. Like the way we were talking was how you and I were talking. There's no, like do that. Like, no yelling. It was like just talking like this. And, uh, Dickie said like, what's the matter? And I go, I can't reload. Uh, my fucking arms blown off. I look, cause when I look down at my arm, my, um, was fucking absolutely destroyed. It was pretty much hanging off. Um, I had, I had an arterial bleed, so there was blood going fucking everywhere. And then, uh, Dickie just kept dumping rounds down range at the guy. And, uh, then I, everything kind of started. I was like, I told Dickie, I said, I'm fucked because I knew I was losing a ton of blood and my, uh, I was holding my gun on my right hand and I could see my, it was like slow motion. My hand was like opening, like I was losing function because I was losing so much blood. So, um, Dickie was uh, like, we got to get a tourniquet on. And I was telling, I'm like, yeah, put a, cause I legit am fucked. Like I could tell this was going to be bad. And then, uh, I pretty much just fell on the ground. I ended up taking five rounds, two in the front of my chest, uh, one in the side and then two in my left arm, right. In my forearm. And, uh, Dickie ended up, he friggin' saved my life. He put a, the tourniquet on me. He was a former combat, uh, army combat medic. So if you wanted, uh, someone in the woods with you that day, like he's, he's the guy I'm picking. And, um, he put the friggin' tourniquet on me and otherwise I would have been screwed. So how long have you guys been carrying tourniquets on your person? Cause it seems like it's a somewhat uh, I mean, new thing. I'm going to probably a couple of years and like we, it's funny now, like when we were told, like we had to carry tourniquets on our person, you know, how like every cop is hates fucking change. They're like, Oh, I got to carry this. Where am I going to put this thing? It's like, it's, it's not like you're fucking carrying a briefcase around <laughs> uh, on your vest. Like so people were pissed that we had to carry tourniquets, but 
Um, yeah, God, if we didn't have him, we would have been uh, screwed. And Matt, they put a tourniquet on Matt too, because Matt took a round in his left bicep. It went in his left bicep and then straight out his back. So they end up putting a, a tourniquet on Matt too. So I'm assuming the guy obviously was killed in this this initial exchange. Oh yeah, yeah peppered. Um, yep. So you're wounded. Your partner's wounded. Kit you know, is fatally wounded. What does that next phase look like? Um. So what I re- I don't I started like going in and out of consciousness because I lost so much blood. But I remember uh, a couple things like I remember the radio transmissions and they were like, "Where are you guys?" And I remember saying like. Where, like you didn't fucking just hear like all the gunfire where are we like you how do you not know that was like going through my mind like how do they not know where we are but then like the big thing was trying to evac me out like those guys uh fucking i can't imagine like those i've seen some pictures from that day and like the the adrenaline going through them i'm i'm a friggin 195 pounds like those guys fucking going through that shit with me uh carrying me out was those guys are fucking beast doing that like it's if you guys if you saw the the terrain what those guys had to like get through to get me out of there get me to an ambulance like it was a shit show in that was it your your fellow law enforcement officers that were taking you out yeah yep yeah so we had um yeah we had a ton of guys down there that day um every once that call started going bad everyone started coming down there but yeah so they get me um they were going to bring me into boston um, to Boston Medical Center, but they didn't think I'd make it because of the blood loss. So I went to um, a hospital in a neighboring community. They took me there. So Matt ended up going to uh, into Boston. So we went two different places. But um, yeah, that was just, um, I remember seeing like a couple uh, going in and out of it, coming out of the woods. I, I didn't really like, I don't know what the hell was. I knew I was shot and I knew it was bad. And I'm like, fucking A. I kept like thinking, I'm, I'm never going to see my fucking kids again. And uh, I remember seeing uh, one of my friends who, uh, great guy, and I ended up seeing him when I'm there pulling me out and I looked at him and he looked like, the look on his face was like he just lost the biggest game of his life. And I remember saying to myself like, okay, if he's looking like that, he was fairly new at the time too. I knew him well enough that if he was looking like that, it was fucking bad. And then um, one of my other friends opened the back door of the ambulance. I remember making eye contact with him and he was fucking bawling, crying. And that's when I knew I'm like, holy shit, like he's crying. Like this is not freaking good. So yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty nuts. And I, I do remember the um, ambulance ride because I kind of, um, I guess I kind of woke up on the ambulance. I was like, you got to give me, I felt like I was fucking burning from the inside out. So they ended up giving me like a couple uh, nasal uh, fentanyl is what they had to give me. Did that, do you remember that helping at all? <laughs> Uh, it helped until, um, I remember like the, the going, to, when I arrived at the hospital, it was a shit show because so many cops were there from, um, I don't even know how the hell, obviously like word gets out. There was like cops there from Weymouth PD, uh, a bunch of my guys were there. So I remember like the hospital was like already lined with people and was like, what the hell is going on here? But I remember they immediately brought me to like x-rays to like see what else was fucked up. And, uh, that's when like the stuff started wearing off and it was freaking awful now simultaneously i think a very interesting part of the story and i just saw a news article on this very thing talk to me about kit and then that ambulance ride um so i knew he was um 
I was telling Dickie, so where I fell in the woods, where I ultimately fell, like it was probably the worst place to fucking fall because I was literally like face to face with Kit, like staring back at each other. I'm like, I fucking, I knew he was dead anyways. Once those, uh, those three quick rounds, I could tell he was dead. So that was my whole thing too. Uh, I was telling, um, Dickie in the woods. I'm like, fucking kid's fucking dead. And that like, that was the worst thing. Like, obviously I did everything. We were partners for, uh, over a decade. We've done so much shit together. I'm with him more than I'm with my freaking kids. Like I, I talk to him more than I talk to anyone. He knows my, uh, my dark secrets. He, if I was having a bad day, I'd be talking to him in the cruiser. And so that was, uh, terrible, but, um, yeah, I, I always say too, like the way he was, if, um, I'd rather him go out that way than, um, me having to make the decision at like the, at the vet's office to put him down. So, um, he was a, a warrior and that's, uh, he went out. If we didn't have him that day, you have three dead cops. So now did they actually try and work him though? Cause didn't he have an ambulance ride himself? No, he, um, oh, okay. yeah, nope. They just, uh, he was unfortunately gone, um, uh, he was gone quick okay because i just saw an article on i forget where it was now but they're going to start training paramedics to be able to treat canines which i thought was phenomenal my dad was a, a vet so i grew up around that that's a result of um another um great man sean gannon who was part of our um, canine training group uh yarmouth police yarmouth police down the cape he worked and um unfortunately sean um was killed doing a search of an attic at a house for um this fucking asshole that was hiding up there and um his dog nero got wounded and um because of the laws of mass um they couldn't transport him in an ambulance so um that's since changed nero's laws passed and um yeah so now moving forward um these um these police canines will be able to uh you know, be transported in an ambulance and, and get the uh, care they need if uh, if need be. Beautiful. Yeah, I've got two German Shepherds sitting outside my door, so I can only imagine, you know, the impact that must have had on you. I mean, I, again, she's seen, you know, my, my oldest one especially has been there through divorce and all kinds of shit. So yeah. she's oh, uh, crazy. She, she's my therapy yeah. dog, poor, poor thing. All right. Well, then walk me through that then. So they get you to the hospital. You know, what what was reported to you from the surgical team as far as how close you were and then what they were able to fix? I don't I don't remember James much until. So that was Friday afternoon. I had I don't I, surgery immediately. I went into surgery immediately. And then I don't really remember much Saturday. And then I remember um, Sunday like uh, seeing like hearing the stories from people and i was like holy fuck and then to make matters worse i got uh i got poison ivy so fucking bad because <clears throat> in the woods where i fell there must have been like a bunch of poison ivy so i was dealing with the gunshot wounds and the nastiest case of fucking poison ivy like it was it was uh, brutal. I, I actually give Dickie shit now too. I'm like, what are you doing? Like rubbing my fucking, <laughs> rubbing me in a uh, poison ivy. So that was brutal. But um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know the extent of um, my injuries. Um, they said my arm was banged up. I lost um, a bunch of my radius that they eventually told me they're going to have to do a bone graft and take bone out of my hip. So I knew my, my arm was jacked up. 
Um, and I knew, and then I was dealing with like the whole frigging thing with kid. I'm like, this is fun. And I didn't know, my question was like, where is he? Like, where, what the hell did they do with him? And then, uh, they, the, my canine group stepped up, like canine guys are weird, like all over the country. Like the, the canine guys are just a different breed than other people. So it is what it is. We're weird, but we like it and that's fine. So those guys all showed up at the scene and, um, they, t- they took kid out. Um, the group took him out and put him in the uh, cruise and they ended up taking him to, um, the Weymouth VCA. And, um, I don't even know what, again, I didn't know all this happened until days later. And then, uh, he was at the VCA and they had, uh, someone there 24 seven, someone from our group sitting there with him, So he was never alone. And then, um, thankfully a, um, funeral home in our community, um, stepped up and, um, said that we could put him at the funeral home until I was out of the hospital and we could, uh, determine what we we're going to do service wise for him. So, um, this funeral home put him there and same thing, like our, our canine group, uh, made a schedule out and he was never alone. They were there 24 seven, um, until, uh, the day we had his service. And correct me if I'm wrong, when you kill a canine, it's the same as killing a human police officer. Is that right? As far as the, I mean, if, if the person survived the, the legal side. No, it's, uh, no, it's like a, it's like a, basically like a, uh, mistreating a police animal. I don't even think it's like, it's not, it's just like, really? no, they just constitute as a, a canine as like a tool. So yeah, he wouldn't be charged with like murder for killing a police dog. Oh, I, I misunderstood so, that then. Yeah. All right. Well then, so you've lost Kit, you know, you've now gone from super able physical, you know, SWAT canine officer to recovering with with the injuries that you got or the wounds excuse me what was that mental journey for you like you're now compounding you know in, in incident number three you've lost your partner i mean that must have been pretty crippling yeah i know what um so the, the, my hospital stay i was in the hospital for a week it was kind of a blur and it didn't hit me until i was out of the hospital a couple of days and i had to go back and get the dressing changed on my arm and i was kind of I think I was numb to everything that happened and my whole focus wasn't on me. It was like, I can't believe fucking kids dead. And, um, I didn't want to go back to my house because there was so many friggin' reminders of, you know, like the, the friggin' day we left, like whether it was, um, you know, just reminders of, of him at the house. I was like dreading going home, but I think when it finally hit me and, um, I had to get my dressing changed on my arm and, um, the doctor was taken. I haven't seen what my arm looked like. And I thought I'd have like a, oh, you got shot a couple times in the arm. I thought I'd have like a couple holes in my arm. And then he took the dressing off. And I remember like, and I don't even feel like a puss saying it. Like he t- took the dressing off and I was looking at my arm and I just started fucking crying. I'm like, holy fuck. Like I can't pick up my kids. Like, am I going to be able to use this arm again? But then it's, I started to feel bad for myself for a second. And then I'm like, cut the shit because there's people out there that have it 10 times worse than you, your arm's still attached to your body. So that was like my, Oh shit moment. Like unfuck yourself because it's not, not that bad. People have it worse. And I think that's the mindset I tried to carry from that day um, to the present day. Like that's my thing. People have it worse and um, I'll, I'll work through this and get better. Now, did you lean into peer support again with the same tools you used earlier in your career? Yep. Yep. And I, I relied on them and, um, 
I know, I know you. We're not doing video, James, but you can see like how. Yeah. Jack. Yeah, up. scar like, from your wrist all the way up yeah, to your bicep. Back got. Uh, yeah, my arm is definitely doesn't. It's coming back a little bit, but I it looked like a little baby arm for a while. Because <laughs> now it's now it's not, but. Um, so yeah, oh, de- I definitely leaned on. I'm a, I'm a huge any any person that's like I don't need uh, oh peer support. It's not for me. It's like don't don't say that and like don't knock it. Those people are doing good things. It definitely friggin' helps. And uh, I, I know back in the day when I was new too, I'm like oh you don't you don't want to go talk to someone because you think people are gonna again think you're soft. But they've um, they sure have helped me deal with uh, deal with a bunch of stuff. So this daily reminders, people like. I don't, I don't sit home and like, uh, cry myself to sleep. I don't do that. I'm, I'm thankful to be here. Um, I've been involved in some bad shit, but at the same time, I've, uh, done some cool shit because, you know, all the training and the time I put into the, put into canine, like it paid, ultimately it paid off and it saved me and, uh, saved the guys I was with. So I don't, uh, that's just the way I look at it. And if I can help, guys that are going through uh have been in shootings that need something or want to bounce stuff off me now i know i have like a little platform that i can stand on to to help these guys or guys that deal with this in the future so you're wearing an operation during warrior shirt so talk to me about how you met chris jacobson and, and got involved with that organization so after um after um, my incident uh paulie lewis who worked in Ware, new hampshire um he got shot um a few months prior to me and um he reached out to me i didn't know paulie and um he reached out to me and was like hey uh, i'd love to talk to you uh this happened to me so i was like oh, all right like i'll any advice i get from someone who's been through it i will so we ended up meeting up and uh he came down and i was like bouncing shit off him about um his recovery and um one thing led to another. He had a, he made a couple connections through other guys um, across the country that also uh, were shot in the line of duty. So it, it's crazy how this came, this all came together. But then he told me about um, CJ and he was like, Hey, would you be interested in doing this operation during warrior? And he explained it to me. And um, I had one conversation with CJ on the phone and I'm like, fucking this guy's fucking awesome. Like, yes, like let's get together and, whatever you want to do it, it, it like the cause is great and um we two weeks ago we went up to new hampshire to mount washington and we had a couple dudes um that got shot in the line of duty met up there and we had a good group and we um we hiked mount washington and cj came he's a beast so talk to me about what you saw in that one group because i mean i i've um been to a few spartan races with the mass athletes you know and, and some of the people that have come through just making them realize what they are capable of again after being wounded or you know whatever's happened to them prior it's it's incredible seeing them at the start line versus the finish line what were you witnessing in other people and in yourself as well um i i just i think it's like a big thing because you see um there's there's people dealing with uh the same stuff that you're dealing with and luckily we didn't have um the three of us um honorees if you want to call us the um all had similar injuries, all gunshots to the arm. So um, based on that, it was just, it was nice to hear like what those guys are doing, what they're going through. And it's the same stuff that your, your head's thinking. Sometimes you don't want to think you're crazy. Like, Oh, this fucking smell bothered me. And it reminds me of this. 
but then you ask them and they're like, oh yeah, like th- this is a reminder for me. And it's, it's like th- those things, but to see those guys um, like CJ, Mike Krifka, he lives down in Texas, like these guys doing this stuff for us and, you know, put, putting us first. And uh, I don't know, the, the whole organization is great. And uh, it's something I'm going to, I'll stay a part of and uh, I'll push to other people too. Cause it's like guys like CJ, he's, like those guys will give you, they, I just met him and he, I could friggin' call him right now and he'd probably, if I needed a favor, he would friggin' do it. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And it's usually, you know, I've said this a lot, it's the men and women that already served that yep. then look around and go, why is there not more support for our men and women uniform? And it's them. It's it's the, the people that were on the streets that step up and start these organizations. Right. Yep. But, um, yeah, it's a, if, if people that don't know about um, Operation Enduring Warrior, look it up. It's um, great people, great cause, and uh, they're doing they're doing great things. Absolutely. Well, the shooting happened in 2021, the, the third one. Obviously, the political media climate was a little different. You were shot at from a guy in the woods whilst trying to use a non-lethal you know, element, which is the, the canine. Um, seems pretty cut and dry again. What was the media or um, legal uh, element or, or you know factor after that particular shooting in that new climate? Well, su- surprise! I think my department did a great job, like getting with the media. If you don't get info out to them, that's when they start like making shit up. Um, so we pretty much my department put everything out, everything they had, they put out pretty quick. And, um, the media was, they've been phenomenal here. They've been, uh, they were great. There was no issues with them. They reached out. I did. They were, they were trying to like, like blow me up for a little bit. Wanted me to say like talk and do an interview, but I wasn't like, that wasn't going to happen. And we finally, um, we got cleared. That was in June. We got cleared by the district attorney on December 1st, uh, 2021. And then, um, yeah, it kind, of, it kind of just went away after that. I think initially it was um, obviously when an animal's involved, it's a different, um, like it, people are shooting cops all over the place. It's absolutely, there's no excuse for it. And, but I think when people, uh, and people don't give a fuck, that's like, the, that's what bothers me too. Like it's just, oh, a cop got shot here. It's like, oh, really? But then uh, I think when an animal's involved, it takes on like a whole new level because even like idiots can, uh, Oh, like I shouldn't say that. Like haters can like ha- have compassion for a dog dying. So I think that was like that took on that was like a whole different ball game. That there was a dog involved. They uh, they went to like a whole new level. I was getting cards from like all over the world, not just um, New England, not the United States, all over the freaking world. I was getting cards from people that uh, it was crazy. You just you don't realize how many people care until something bad happens. Yeah, and I think most people do, and that's the sad fact. And it was interesting that you said, you know, if you don't tell the media what's going on, they'll start creating their stories. That's exactly what you see. And then sadly, the squeaky wheels, the extremists kind of hijack the narrative and then off they go. But I think that most people do care. Most people do want to walk out their front door and feel safe. And, you know, whether it's addressing some of the issues in law enforcement, whether it's addressing the many issues in society in general, if we collectively have this conversation, we will improve it. But if we just listen to the haters, as you said, from both sides, we're never going to fix anything. Yep. And the other, the other thing uh, too, if you like shoot, you shoot an animal, like you shoot a dog, you're a fucking asshole. So I think that's what, uh, like, I, I think everyone realized that like 
he sucked. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what is what does the future look like for you? What you you've gone through this? Obviously, I'm sure physically at least it's it's changed to the trajectory slightly. What what's next for you? Um, I'm just working hard to get stronger. Uh, another thing before I forget too, like people are. Uh, the media is like huge for this too. They like a, a police officer will get shot. Someone there will say that um, uh, the officer is going to be okay. He suffered non-life-threatening injuries, and it's like non-life-threatening. It should be uh, life-altering because uh, my arm will never be the same. There's hundreds of other people out there, cops in in this country that have got shot, non-life-threatening injuries, but they were fucking forever altered. So I hate that. Uh, I hate when people say, oh, it's non-life-threatening injuries. It was just your arm. Like, yeah, it was just my arm, but it, it's fucking destroyed. So that drives me nuts when I hear that. Um, but, my, yeah, just rehabbing my arm, and um, we'll, see, we'll see what happens if I go back to work or not. I don't know what uh, – I, I don't know. Like, I have young kids, so I don't know. I, I don't think I'm a tough guy. I don't claim to be. But I don't know if I have anything else to prove. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I don't know what what the next chapter holds, but we'll we'll see. I'll keep working hard and um, open book for people if they need anything. Like that's that's my one thing. If I can take anything out of uh, like bad shit happening, it's um, I'll help someone down the road that uh, that needs it. So we'll see what happens. No one. Uh, no, uh, nothing definite yet, James, but we'll see what happens. You got a blank canvas again now. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah. But I don't know if I'll, uh, but people keep asking me too, have you got another dog? Like I have zero love to give another dog. Like after what happened and what I saw, like I have people are asking, like, can we, uh, we want to give you this dog and do that. Like I am all set with another dog, zero love to give. I don't know if down the road I'll get over it, but as of right now, not happening yeah my wife when i met her she'd lost her previous boyfriend to suicide so she was going through a lot of trauma but separate from that years prior she had had a a dog um and let me get this right yeah she had a dog and then she ended up i think it was killed by a car if i'm not mistaken um anyway so she she lost this animal and the grief hit her so hardly that she fucking put a mental wall up and for about the first three years we were together, she refused to connect with my dog. What's funny is about three years in, that heart started melting and now she adores that thing. So I think that's just it. It's, it is a two-way relationship, but you've got to be ready for that. And when, if and when that time happens, then obviously that's when the right animal will show up. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go, if that's okay. Sure. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It could be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, yeah, James Hatch, uh, Touching the Dragon, fucking unbelievable book. Um, I actually have the privilege of uh, to uh, James reached out to me after everything that happened. But if, if people haven't read that book, Touching the Dragon, it's phenomenal. Um, I just read Eddie Penny's book, Unafraid. Pretty awesome. Um, yeah, th- those are my uh, those are the, the my two go to books right now. Brilliant. What about movies and or documentaries that you love? Um, God, I'm not a huge. Uh, I actually, I just saw the uh, the new Top Gun, James. Wasn't that amazing? Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, 
good. But yeah, I don't have um, check. I, I wish they would do more stuff. But there was a um, documentary a couple of years ago that came out called Officer Involved. Um, I don't know whatever happened happened to them, but it was um, I watched. Someone told me about that after my first shooting. And I watched it and I was like, just because I was trying to like deal with some stuff. And this guy, um, he, he was a cop. He took like a leave of absence and he went around like interviewing um, cops all over the country that were involved in OISs. And uh, it was kind of like an eye opener for me that uh, like to, to see some of the shit these people were dealing with. It actually made me feel better. I, I hope he like does something else, too, because uh, it was pretty good. But um, officer involved it was pretty good to get the perspective of uh, someone that's done that shit. So, yeah, I think it's something that we all need to educate ourselves, you know, anyone that's not in uniform, whether it's in a law enforcement or not, because it's so easy to have this kind of one-sided view when this happens. And, And like I said, when you take a step back and ask yourself, would this person have woken up that morning and wanted this to, to pay out that way? Of course not. And then also have the parallel conversation with that now criminal have wanted to end up as a now criminal also not so how do we you know how do we approach both of those educate ourselves on the risks that a lot of our men and women in uniform are putting themselves into for complete strangers and at the same time how can we improve law enforcement fire etc but how can we also improve the communities themselves and that's the other conversation we have and we're never going to have that until we get rid of this narrative that anyone in uniform is is a fascist just waiting for an opportunity to kill someone Right. And I, uh, uh, to talk about that too, like I've heard people that I've worked with, I've heard other people in law enforcement, like they have this, like, Oh, I could go out and do this. And I don't, I don't give a shit. And it's like, uh, if you, if you did it, you would, you would care and see that it's not like this. Um, like it's, you don't get a fucking trophy for, for doing it. It's, and I, I was guilty of that too. There was some, a couple guys in my canine group, um, when I was new into canine, I kind of looked at them like, oh, they were in shootings, like that's cool. And you kind of like look at them, but then it happens to you. And you're like, why did I ever think this was cool? Because it's not like it is what it is. It's what we're, we're trained to do if you have to do it. But anyone who says they want to do it or can't wait till it happens, like, fucking come on. Yeah. Well, it's the same in the fire side and EMS, you know, oh, I, I can't wait to see some of these car wrecks or a person in a fire and then you see it and it, stays in your head for decades and you're like yeah no i shouldn't have been excited about this 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 fucking blows (laughs) yep yep that's it's so it's so true like i always think about that too going back to i tell my friends will have questions and i i always tell them like i would love to go back to uh, march 24th 2016 before my first one happened just to see like what i what i felt like then instead of like what i carry around now what i think about and as I touched on earlier, I don't, I don't sit here like whining and be like, Oh, feel bad for me. But there's like little, little triggers. And I've talked to other people that have been involved in this, like whether it's a smell or just anything, a reminder that, uh, of something, uh, it just, it's, it's not something that goes away. No. And it's interesting as well, because there's a pursuit for us to get back to where we were before. And I think that's a, that's a fiction. You know, we have to find the healthiest version of who we are today because you can't yep. go through, you know, a service as a police officer, a corrections officer, a dispatcher, a firefighter and expect to be the same person 10, 20 years later because, you know, we're doing and seeing and hearing things that no human should ever do, see or hear. 
Yep. So true. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions? Um, oh, I could definitely I could definitely find you one. I got. Um, did you have Jesse Hartnett on yet? No, no. What was his name? Jesse. Jesse Hartnett. I hope he doesn't get mad at me saying this, but yeah, he's um, worked in Philly. Um, I can I can ask him. Please do. Amazing. He'd be a good one. All those those guys, even like Paulie Lewis, um, he'd be great. Jesse Hotnett. Um, yeah, I got a couple other uh, couple other guys. If I can talk them into it, that would be uh, that would be great. Perfect. I'd appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Oh, I, I am. Uh, I'm in here right now. This is I have um, I have a garage gym that we made into a, a CrossFit box, and this is pretty much my. Uh, this is what I this is what I I do now. This is like my job out here, to, just to try to get stronger and get back to where I was. So that's my uh, my kids, and uh, my kids are obviously my number one. And then um, this is kind of like my my outlet here. I don't like I said before I don't drink, so this is kind of like my uh, my bar. Now. I've found CrossFit incredibly valuable. I got into it in about 2006-ish time um, and I've seen how it paid off in the fire service. I was a fireman before, so I got to see kind of before and after and the performance. When did you find CrossFit and how did you see it apply to law enforcement through your eyes? Um, I think it was, uh, God, I want to say 2015, we kind of uh, started uh, working out at a local gym doing it i didn't i knew like a little bit about it but didn't know a ton and uh started kind of messing around and then uh we went to this place we were kind of writing our own workouts up and then um i ha- i have a big this is like a big garage like a 30 by 30 garage and there was a few of us at that gym we're like why don't we just do this uh start doing our own thing and we'll do it uh in my garage so this is uh James, you would like it. Yeah, I'll have to show you. Uh, I'll, when this is over, I'll I'll turn this around and you can uh, see what I have here. But it came out good. But yeah, I think I, I'll I'll tell you too. My first thing um, when I realized like fitness was a big thing, I had a um, this was before canine too, and I had a foot chase. I had a um, tried to stop this car for bullshit, and uh, the guy foot bailed out of the car, and I had to chase him. And we ran a couple hundred yards and then the guy stopped and like squared up and wanted to fight. And I was like, holy fuck, I just ran 200 yards. And now this, and he was bigger than me, like had to, he wants to fucking fight me. So we ended up stopped wrestling and uh, wrestling on the ground. And I was fucking an absolute mess. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And luckily I could hear the sirens coming, my backup coming. So I kind of just like held this guy down, did what I had to do until they got there. And I think that was my moment that I thought I was in decent shape then, but then I was like, you need to like unfuck yourself and, and step it up a notch. And that's when I like really started uh, going pretty nuts in the gym. So that was my, like my moment that uh, I had to do something. And then I, I get, I'll say it. I get angry. Like when I see fat canine guys, like how are you like way overweight ripping through the woods with a, a freaking dog attached to you? Like it just doesn't make, make sense. And, that was one of the things my doctor told me after uh, June 4th happened. He's like, you're lucky you're in decent shape because um, if you weren't, uh, you'd probably be freaking dead. So, yeah, I, I take it pretty serious. I try to – my department is um, – my chief is huge into fitness. Um, he lets the guys work out for an hour a day on shift, which is huge. Uh, Jim 
at our station is probably, uh, you know, better than most CrossFit gyms. It's pretty nice. So we're, um, we're a big fitness oriented department, which is awesome when you have that, the backing from the administration to do that. Well, I'm so glad I asked that at the end because I mean that's such a powerful statement, especially when you know we 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 can see the the uh, element of strength and conditioning paying into you surviving on the street, for example, a foot chase into a you know, grappling element. But so many times I've spoken to people that are only alive today because their fitness contributed to them surviving whatever traumatic incident they went through. So that's a powerful statement. Yeah, I think it's just, um, I just think it's a, it's a huge thing for, for law enforcement. Like you got to, uh, it, it helps in so many areas that if you just do something, plus you like, you just feel good doing it. So yeah, huge, huge fan of, um, working out. And, um, I actually try to push it on. I try to push it on a lot of people because it is like, you don't, you don't want to be that guy. No, exactly. Absolutely. All right. Well, in the very last question, I'm sure a lot of people would love to kind of reach out to you or follow you. Where are the best places online to do that? I, I'm not crazy um, social media guy. I do have uh, an Instagram. It's at W Cushing, C-U-S-H-I-N-G. I don't, if you do have a question, I would get back to you. I'm not, um, I don't go on, uh, I don't do Facebook or any of that stuff. But if they did have a question, reach out to me on uh, Instagram. And, uh, like I said, I'm, for the cops out there listening, I, I'm an open book. If there's anything I can do and just friggin' ask, but yeah, not, not crazy into social media, James, but that's, uh, I'm like an Instagram and, and Twitter guy. So yeah, I would just do Instagram if I had a choice. I mean, I, I find almost no value in the other ones to be honest. No, no. And I, I don't, the only reason I usually go on it is because of like news and, um, like I'll look at like cool workouts on Instagram. I don't like post dumb shit and like these people like uh, some of my friends put stuff up about like uh fucking like politics every day it's like i don't have i don't have time like it, it's a fucked up world it is what it is like you bitching on instagram is not going to change it so there's a guy that stands on one of the intersections in ocala and he's clearly you know a very big fan of of trump and his fan his, his signs used to be all pro-trump when he was in and now they're all anti-biden and i always just drove by going regardless of your politics the time that you spend on that corner holding a sign if you did something good in your community you'd actually be part of the change yep yep we have we have those people we have a busy intersection in town and it's like friday nights they were like this group of um this group of like white kids with um blm signs it's like what like go fucking do something productive instead of sitting here like flipping off cars that go by yeah exactly and social media is the same all right well billy i just want to say thank you i mean each one of these stories is is, is you know so important for people to hear and i also understand as i say this a lot with guests that have been you know in some dark places that it it takes a little bit from you when you you know recall some of these scenes and tell these stories but as you touched on i know the value that so many people will get listening to this so i just want to thank you for telling the story thank you for telling us who kit was um and for coming on the behind the shield podcast today thanks james i appreciate you having me it's uh, been an honor and uh, i'm so glad we got to uh got to chat you're doing good things we appreciate it